in James this morning, I trust that our hearts need to be transformed. We're going to be in James 1 this morning, looking at verses 5 through 8, and I'll read it in just a couple minutes. In his 2010 self-published book, The Thrill of the Chase, Forrest Fenn, an art and antiquities collector, describes a treasure chest containing gold nuggets, rare coins, jewelry, and gemstones. It's really a beautiful chest, and you can find pictures of it online. Fenn writes that he hid the chest in the mountains somewhere north of Santa Fe. Fenn claims that this poem and uh, stories in the book contain clues and hints to, to where the chest is located, where it's hidden. Fenn's book and story prompted, as you would guess, many treasure hunts in the Rocky Mountains of New Mexico, of Colorado, Wyoming, and, and Montana. Its, va- its value has been estimated as high as $2 million, and you can actually find estimates e- even further, maybe. While Fenn and his treasure are fascinating, perhaps even more interesting are the great lengths that people have gone to to find this, tre- this treasure chest. In the process, they have been very bold in digging up portions of Yellowstone National Park and, and even at times uh, uh, d- damaging cultural artifacts. One man broke into Fenn's property, stole a chest, not this buried chest, stole a chest, only to be held at gunpoint until the authorities arrived. Someone has sued Fenn for allegedly deceiving these number of searchers. In January 2020, so this year, a man had to be rescued by Yellowstone National Park Rangers, and it says, uh, quote, after he had attempted to rappel over 850 feet from a rope tied to a railing into the Grand Canyon of the, of the Yellowstone. And that's someone doing that, even though Fenn had said that no climbing was necessary. But most tragic is that over the last five years, Five men have died while searching for this treasure, each on their own, uh, on their own separate journey. So they didn't five die together, and each in, in, in their own journey. These men had great confidence that Fenn's treasure was real and that it was worth it. As Jeremy just read in Proverbs 2, verses 1 through 5 this morning, we saw that wisdom should be sought after the way that people search for hidden treasure. How would you describe your search for wisdom? Are you as compelled to find wisdom as those men who died were to find forced fens, buried treasure? Is wisdom something you must have or something that you passively hopes will come to you over time? You know, the more gray hair you get, the more wise you get. And, you know, as you get older, you'll get wiser. Well, this morning from James 2, verses 5 through 8, we'll explore the value of wisdom, why it is worth searching for. I'm going to read to you from James 1, 1 through 8. And notice, though, as we get to verse 5, uh, there's, there's kind of a, a it, it feels like a sudden break. So be, be, be ready for that, and then we'll look at it. James 1, verses 1 through 8. James, a bondservant or a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Perhaps as you were listening, when when, when you came to verse 5, you wondered, what? How did we get here? How, like, where did this wisdom come from? In context, the most likely thing to have prayed for wouldn't have been wisdom, but but the maturity 
the perfection, the the, the being that mature saint that James was talking about. Or maybe it would have been natural to pray for endurance, because endurance leads to that maturity. Or maybe even as James starts, praying for joy in trials. Perhaps you wondered as you read, so why this hard turn, James? Like, why are we talking about wisdom now? And this morning, we're going to answer that question as we examine three, three aspects of wisdom so that you'll ask God for wisdom and receive it. So we're going to examine three aspects of wisdom so that you will ask God for wisdom and receive it. Not just ask, but also receive. And he's going to explain who is the person who asks and receives wisdom. So let's first look at that first aspect of wisdom, the value of wisdom, the value of wisdom. And James begins in verse 5, but if any of you lacks wisdom. So what is wisdom? Well, one commentator describes it as, wisdom is the practical use of knowledge. I think that's a really good short description. Another says, the ability to apply what we know to the problems of life. Quote, the ability to apply what we know to the problems of life. Not just knowledge, but applying it. Wisdom results in living in a way that our conduct matches up with our confession. It is applying the truth and the commands of God's word to life's choices. And a a wise person is adept at choosing the right way. He's living life in a skilled way. They are skilled in listening to God's word. They are skilled in meditating God's word. And then they are skilled in doing what God's word says. They have practiced in applying knowledge in a way that results in actions and speech that are appropriate to God's presence. As Solomon says in Proverbs 19.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom begins with a a true fear of the Lord, with with, with an appreciation of who he is, with with our theology really getting into our, our hearts so that we are left in awe, and in awe that drives us to him, and not in awe that causes us to flee from him. That wisdom begins with the true fear of the Lord, and then it continues to become obedience before the Lord. And James begins in verse 5, but if any of you lacks wisdom, and so who does James think is lacking wisdom? Now, of course, there are ways in which we are all lacking wisdom in many life choices. But James is talking about something more essential than wisdom in, in, in choosing a career path or wisdom in parenting, wisdom in spending our time and resources, or, or and, and, and really we could talk about wisdom in all all kinds of things, and all of those are within the broader sphere of wisdom, of knowing God's word and and applying it. But he's not just talking about wisdom in a specific choice. And and I think that's a lot of times the way we talk about this verse, but we're going to see that James is talking about something that is more fundamental than wisdom in a specific choice. See, ultimately, wisdom, wisdom, the wise person, this is another way to speak about being perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That picture of the mature person at the end of verse 4. So when he says that count trials as joy because trials produces endurance, endurance has this incredible result of making us a perfect and a mature person. Wisdom is another way of speaking of that kind of person. A mature man is a wise man. You won't find a mature man who's not wise. I believe this is why James quickly moves from the goal of endurance in verse 4 to the command to pray for wisdom in verse 5. He's really talking about the, 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 the same kind of life, the same kind of maturity. Wisdom is going to be essential to you if you are going to obey what last week's message called. If you are going to count life's trials as joy, you're going to need wisdom. If you are going to have endurance through trials, you're going to need wisdom. And if you're going to let endurance have its perfect work in your life so that you become a mature person, a complete person, not lacking anything, you're going to need wisdom. Wisdom necessitates, it needs a a a fundamental commitment to submit ourselves to God. Wisdom requires a fundamental commitment to submit ourselves to God. And that includes, as we talked about last week, his lordship over the circumstances of our life, but also his lordship over 
how we respond to those circumstances. And wisdom requires both of those. And it requires us to be committed to saying, Jesus is Lord of this day, and Jesus is also Lord of how we need to respond to his sovereignty. This is the kind of wisdom that is willing to count all of life's trials that God has decreed for us as joy. To, to, to look at that testing as joy. This kind of wisdom, this is the kind of wisdom that seeks God in suffering rather than rages at God while we go through suffering. This wisdom is thankful rather than complaining. It's trusting rather than like, like Joshua and Caleb going to the promised land rather than like Israel grumbling in the wilderness. This is wisdom that serves rather than tries to rule. True wisdom embraces God as he is and understands ourselves as we are. Wisdom is theology in practice. Wisdom is theology in practice. And that's why James says what he does in James 3.17 when he describes real wisdom. And really he describes it in, in, in a way that it's different than we would assume. He says the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, purer than peaceable. Oh, sorry, I skipped my Good fruits unwavering without hypocrisy. See, wisdom is different. Wisdom, wisdom overflows into all of those things, pure purity and without hypocrisy and mercy and good fruits. Wisdom is theology and practice. Wisdom is not simply making a wise choice. And so often we use this just, just about wisdom in a certain choice. And maybe in context, you could have wisdom in responding to trial or wisdom in becoming mature, but it's more foundational than that. Wisdom is becoming a mature person. And that is the value of wisdom. It is as if James had said in verses three and four, there's this theologically true, this, this beautiful and complex promise. You can become mature, you can become fruitful, you can become the complete, but it takes a, a radically different way of seeing the world. It's the way of wisdom. So then he says, who is willing to get this wisdom? Who is willing to, to see God's way and do God's way? Are you that person? Are you submitted to God's goal of maturity in your life? And you've had a week to be thinking about that. Maybe you made that list of trials. Are you willing to count them as joy? Are you willing to embrace them and say, this is how God is cultivating endurance. And I'm going to endure by God's grace and with strength of Christ, by abiding in Christ, because I want to become a mature saint. I want to become that tree that is productive and growing fruit. Are you submitted to God's goal, but also to God's means, this, this, this testing that produces endurance? See, when we understand what this real nature of wisdom is, we understand that we're asking for something that's supernatural. The choice to ask for wisdom is choosing between two ways to live. This isn't unlike the Psalm 1 fork in the road that we went to a couple weeks ago. Are we going to be someone who delights in God's word day and night and flourishes? Or are we going to be that chaff in the wind? Are we going to be the person who picks up his cross and follows, that, that saves his life and loses all? Or are we going to be the person who tries to save their life and loses all? Will we sell all to buy the treasure in the field? And now we can add to it this new, this new choice. Will we ask for wisdom? Will we be willing to see life through the lens of God's eyes as revealed in his word? Are we going to respond accordingly to his will? And are we going to be motivated by the reward he's promised? Will you be wise? And that's the value of wisdom. Now we see the value of wisdom. Now, now that we've seen it, do, are, are we willing to ask for it? And we see this wisdom comes from God. So first we see the value of wisdom. Next, we're going to see the source of wisdom. Where does this wisdom come from? Wisdom is not found in libraries. Wisdom is not found on some kind of worldwide trek exploring different cultures and different religions. I want all the wisdom of the world. Wisdom is not merely a function of age or experience. You can be old and foolish. 
James 1.5 continues, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. God is the source of wisdom. The Old Testament clearly teaches that wisdom comes from God. Proverbs 2, verse 6, Jeremy read verses 1 through 5, here's verse 6. The Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Solomon, the author of Proverbs, himself had prayed for and received wisdom from God. And 1 Kings 4.29 describes how now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the, sh- on the seashore. Wisdom comes from God. James describes wisdom in ver- chapter 3, verse 15. Wisdom which comes down from above. Wisdom is God's gift. And God is the only one who can get that that spiritual truth, the truth of his word, into our hearts by his spirit to the point that we value wisdom without him. We're just like this brick wall behind us. You know, wisdom just bounces off of it. That brick wall has no desire for wisdom. Some of you this morning don't really want wisdom. See, wisdom comes from God working in your hearts to, to make your heart open so that you want wisdom, that you value it, that you love it, and that you apply it. Without God's spirit, you cannot live life well. Oh, you might have many things. You, you, you might have, have a rich life. You might have an, a, kind of in a way an abundant life, but you won't have Jesus's kind of abundant life. You won't live life with skill. You won't become that mature person. You won't become that productive fruit tree. God's word may be intriguing to you, but without God's work in your hearts, it won't be transforming. Now, James gives plenty of encouragement to go to God for this wisdom. And James is inviting the the, the various scattered uh, churches, these these Jews that have been spread out in the the diaspora, in the diaspora, in the diaspora, uh, the, 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 the scattered Jews. He's saying, there's a buffet of wisdom and God's inviting you to come and eat as much as you want. Come and get wisdom from God. And they needed it because they were going through trials, through through all kinds of economic hardship. We'll see as we go go through the letter, we'll get a hint of it next week, but also persecution. If you see the disparity between who you are and what God requires from you, that, 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 that goal of that mature person. He says, come and get wisdom. And he encouraged them with the basic character of God. First, he, he describes in, in, in the middle of verse 5, he says, let him ask of God. Come get wisdom of God who gives to all generously. God gives generously without hesitation. And, 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 and that word is, is, is translated generous, but, but it may even have, have behind it this idea with, with single-mindedness, with, 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 without hypocrisy, with sincerity. See, God, in calling you to, ha- to get wisdom from him, he doesn't have a, a secret agenda in his giving. God doesn't play games with us. He's not like a child teasing their, their friend, offering them something only to bring it back and, and to do that again and again. We are not the the, the cat, and wisdom is not the string, and God isn't saying to us, oh, well, don't you want that wisdom to become a mature person and yank it back? God gives generously. His motive is pure. It's single. It is our good for his glory. God is a giving God. God gave us his son. He loved us so much that he gave his only son. In Romans 8, 32, it says, He who did not spare his own son, if he gave his son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? He will give you wisdom. He's generous. So are you willing? Do you want that wisdom? It comes from God. God gives generously and he gives generously to all. It says, God gives to all generously. You are, you are not too young listening this morning to request wisdom from God. And neither are you too old to humble yourself and to get wisdom from God. See, our reception of wisdom is not dependent upon our ethnicity, upon our economics. It is in no way dependent upon our education. God does not show favoritism to whom he will give wisdom generously. 
If you're foolish, God will give wisdom to you. If you're ignorant, God will give wisdom to you. If you are proud and stubborn, humbly pray for wisdom because God gives wisdom to all who request it from him. And third, God gives, gives without reproach. God doesn't criticize those who come for wisdom. He doesn't remind them of their foolishness. God doesn't say, well, of course you come to me now that you've made a real mess of your life. So you're finally tired of living life your way? Well, it's about time you came for wisdom. In the parable of the prodigal son, the father doesn't chide the son when he comes back. And God doesn't provoke those who are needy for wisdom. He, he, he doesn't deride or mock those who are destitute for wisdom. Those who come for wisdom from God, who come willing to embrace, really it is a radical worldview where God sovereignly uses trials to produce in us God-pleasing maturity. Those who come and say, God, you're sovereign. I want you to make in me what you say you can make. Give me wisdom. They are not treated with contempt. As Jesus says in Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? We have a good Father who gives good gifts. He will give us the wisdom that allows us to see trials and to see them as coming from God's hands so that we endure and it produces maturity in our life. And not just that kind of wisdom, but the wisdom that puts theology into practice into all of life. That's really what the book of James is about. Their practice was, was horribly deficient. So James is wondering, do you have this wisdom? So what about you? Will you go to God for wisdom, eager to submit to his means and to embrace his goals? Be encouraged then. God is willing. And, and, and it's important that verse 5 comes before verses 6 through 8 because we have some tough questions to ask. It's going to get a little painful. The second half of the sermon is, is, is going to be longer than the first half. So you need to remember this hope of verse 5. If you are willing, if you're going to sit here through the rest of the sermon saying, I want wisdom, I want wisdom. Remember, God is willing to give wisdom. Those who come asking will receive. Those who knock the door of wisdom will be open. But not everyone is willing. And that brings us to the recipient of wisdom. We look at the value of wisdom. We've seen the source of wisdom. Now we look at the recipient of wisdom. Who gets wisdom? Well, if we just stopped at verse 5, it's like, well, anyone who asks. But James goes a very surprising direction next. He's given the invitation. He's given the promise. But then says, wait, it's not quite that simple. There's both an asking that God responds to and an asking that he will not respond to. Not everyone who asks for wisdom will get it. That's a strange thing to say, but that's what he's going to do here. Some of you may be here today listening who even now say, I want wisdom, but who may not get wisdom. That's shocking, right? It's, it's sobering. It's horrible. I won't say it's horrible because it's in God's righteousness, but it's terrifying. It's not because God's going to run out of wisdom. It's not because he's not willing. The fault lies with the one asking. So we're going to look quickly at verses 6 to 7 to, 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 to get the main idea, and then we're going to explore further. So real quickly, James sets up a contrast between two kinds of people. One person, beginning in verse 6, asks in faith without any doubting. That person receives wisdom. The other person describes as who doubts. James says he ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. He can knock as long as he wants at God's door, but God may not open. Wow. So to understand, 
we first have to understand what kind of faith James is talking about and what kind of doubting James is referring to. And it seems simple at first. It seems like, well, it's faith believing that God will give, give wisdom, and the doubting is doubting that God, whether God really will give wisdom. So if I believe God will give wisdom, I'll get it. And if I doubt he'll give wisdom, then I won't get it. But I don't think it's that simple. What gives me pause is the disturbing description of the doubting man. And we're going to look now at three, at, at, at three aspects here of this doubting man, or really of how James describes it. And the first is in the second half of verse 6. He describes this doubting man as the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. And James begins with a disturbing illustration of this doubting man. The one who doubts is like the water at the mercy of the wind. The wind blows and the water goes where the wind goes. The same word surf is translated in Luke 8 verse 24 as surging. I'm going to read it to you. They came to Jesus and woke him up saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves. And they stopped and it became calm. So there they were in the Sea of Galilee and, and the wind was knocking the waves under the boat. And they're, and they're, they're concerned they're going to die. That's that surf, this, this surging, the surging, the, the choppy waves, the volatile waves. They, they are, are unpredictable waves. You don't know what to expect from them. Which way are you going to be tossed? These waves, you can imagine, are like a rubber duck that's being tossed by the waves in a kiddie pool. And you can imagine uh, several kids sitting in a kiddie pool, and each one of them is trying to get that rubber duck to the other side of the kiddie pool, and they're just splashing. And so all that turmoil in the middle is where that doubting man is. He's like that rubber duck on the sea, splash back and forth. Now, James doesn't explain this illustration yet. We simply see that the one who doubts is battered by opposing forces. So we saw that disturbing illustration. We're going to see next disturbing judgment about this man. We see that in the beginning of verse 7. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. See, that's a presumptuous man. He shouldn't expect the Lord to answer this prayer for wisdom. Can you imagine me saying that to any one of you, sitting across from a table and saying, I don't really think you should expect God to answer that prayer. See, there's something deeply wrong about this man's relationship with God. He's not healthy. He's not just a victim of the storms of life. He's not just battered by difficulty. The problem is internal. He thinks God is his father, but shouldn't expect him to answer. Let me say it again. He thinks God is his father, but James is saying he shouldn't expect God to answer. So third and Verse 8, so we saw this, this disturbing illustration of this man, this disturbing judgment. Now we see a disturbing analysis of this man. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And this is the earliest reference we, 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 we find in, in, in surviving Greek literature to this word, double-minded man, suggesting that maybe James coined this phrase. This man is literally two-souled. He has two souls. He's like a two-headed snake, and each head wants to slither in a different direction. James says this double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, unstable or restless, or, 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 or even he, he, he is uncontrollable. In James 3.8, James uses that same word for restless to describe our tongues. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. It's restless. It's so tough to, to get down. And that's what this double-minded man is like. He's unstable. He's, he's restless, almost uncontrollable. Now, you can imagine for a minute with me, and we're going to get a little crazy here, a, 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 a decathlon. And, and a decathlon is all those various activities like pole vault and long jump and shot put. And imagine a decathlon. And in that decathlon, there is a two-headed man. Imagine a two-headed man in a decathlon, and it's humorous, right? Because imagine the, 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 the instability of that man attempting a pole vault or attempting a shot put. Imagine both heads are saying, oh, no, not yet, now, and oh, you threw it too soon. There, there, there would be a horrible watching, a comical ways of this man being out of sync and this man is fighting for, for, for control of its feet and its hands. 
wanting to do the same activity in two different ways. The word doubting here basically means to, 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 to make a distinction or to distinguish. And, and sometimes it is used for the purpose of, of judging uh, or, 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 or for evaluating something. Is it good or bad? I, I'm making distinction. I'm, 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 I'm distinguishing between two things. But in this form here, it can mean disputing with oneself. This doubting man disputes with himself. And that's appropriate for the idea of being two-souled. The commentator D Douglas Mew describes this as a strong kind of doubting, a basic division within that brings about wavering and inconsistency of attitude toward God. A, a, another older writer says, one who lives in an inner conflict between trust and distrust of God. Do I trust him or don't I? The picture that James paints of this man is dreadful. He's confused. He's divided. He's unsure of what he's actually committed to. He's precariously walking through life. This double-minded man is attempting the impossible. This man is finding both God and the world appealing at the same time, and he's undecided between the two. He listens to the good news of the gospel, that Christ died to save sinners, that any who repented to put their faith in him are saved, and he wants in. But then he's allured by the wooing of the world, and he also wants in. See, the person is not resolute enough to reject Christ, to be like that rich young ruler in Matthew 19, 22. When the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Christ calls him to sell all and follow him, and he goes away sad. This double-minded man won't go away sad, which I think we're thankful for, because that means he's here, and if that's you this morning, you're still listening to God's word. But neither are they committed enough to be like, like Zacchaeus in Luke 19, verse 8. 19, 8 of Luke, he says, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone or anything, I will give back four times as much. He's all in, but not the double-minded man. He'll neither go away, and neither will he follow. Instead, the person is the impossible man. You can think of this doubting man as the impossible man. Jesus says there are two kinds of builders, and he says, well, can I be a third kind of builder? Can, can I not build on the rock or the sand? Can I maybe build on some mud? Jesus says that there's a narrow gate and a wide gate, and this kind of man vacillates between the two lines. He counts the cost of both lines. Well, that, that the narrow way, I have to go through, through humbly and by myself and without all of my stuff. And, but then there's this wide gate there, and that looks pretty good, but I know it leads to destruction. So he's kind of like looking for a third gate. Is there something kind of more between the two? He, he's the impossible man. Matthew 25, Jesus says there are good, faithful slaves who are welcomed in the joy of his master. And there's wicked, worthless slaves who are thrown into outer darkness. But this man is waiting for Jesus to describe a third kind of man. Kind of a hybrid of the two. A lazy slave with some faithful tendencies who doesn't go to hell, even if the joy of the master is not quite enough to get him in. This person, this impossible man, wants a lock and key to his own chain. So he can choose at will between two masters, between God and money. Serve God for a while, serve money for a while, or, or whatever it is he's serving. But he's attempting to serve two masters. See, it's not only onlookers who are confused by this double-minded man. And this man, man reads Matthew 7, verses 17 to 20, which says, So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. Jesus said, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. When this man reads this, he's, he's mystified. Sometimes he's encouraged and sometimes he's worried. He doesn't know what kind of fruit is on its tree. It's like, it's 50-50. Is he a good tree or a bad tree? Does he want to produce fruit or does he just want to coast through life? Does he want to pick up his cross and follow? Does he want to go to Home Depot and just buy some wood and build stuff? 
He, he's, he's, he's incapacitated. We've already seen the opposite of this double-minded man in James 1 verse 4. See, the opposite of this double-minded man is the mature person, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And that is why James is writing. James is saying, push on, become that mature person. Don't be stuck. Don't vacillate. See, the double-minded man has not matured. So James is holding up the the picture of this mature man. He wants to encourage the double-minded man. Ask for wisdom. Be all in. Choose God's way. Now, I'm hesitant to spoil the uh, book of James, but this this, this is really where James is going to keep pushing us. In James 4, verses uh, James 4, verses 4 through 10. And again, like this is one of James' big punches in the book. And he says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? It's one or the other. Therefore, whoever wishes to be friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that, that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. God wants our worship, verse 6 of James 4. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then James calls in verse 7, Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Ask for wisdom and he will give it. James is kind of referencing back. Verse 8, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. The double-minded man is to called to purify his heart, to get rid of this, this, this indecisiveness, this, this sin, this love of the world, this friendship of the world. See, this double-minded man has not obeyed the greatest commandment. Deuteronomy 6.5 You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And, and, and while we are all guilty of, of, of ongoingly disobeying that, some of us know that is my aim in life. That is my purpose in life. I am lining up to ask for wisdom because I want to be a mature man. And not just now during a sermon. Later tonight and tomorrow morning and tomorrow night because they meditate on God's word day and night because they delight in God's word. They're not chaff. See, as, 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 as you look at this, this call of James in James 4 verses 4 through 10 and we, and, and we see a hint of it here in verses 5 through 8 of chapter 1. James calls for repentance at the very least, if not true conversion. And you may be listening this morning not even know if that's you. Do I need to repent or do I need to be converted? Call out to God to be saved. If you need to, and if all repentance was needed, then that's okay. You can trust God with that. Faith in God's promises is needed, that God's way is better, that wisdom is better, submission is needed, confession is essential, weeping is called for, humility is mandatory, and that's, that's why it brings us to the gospel. We come to him weeping and mourning and not just stay there, but say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And we turn away from our sin and we look to Christ on the cross and we look to him 10 times for every look that we look at ourselves. And yeah, we look at ourselves and right now, maybe some of you are feeling just, just disgusted with this divided loyalty. Well, good. Now look to Christ and put all of your hope in him and embrace his sacrifice on your behalf. Turn to him and be saved. That's what the kind of belief is here though. And we'll talk more about that. Do you believe, not just that Christ died for you, but do you believe the way of the cross is worth it? Now, we've examined this double-minded man, and it's disturbing. Well, let's return to the beginning of verse 6. James is giving this, this, this beautiful, really, it is a gospel promise here of wisdom. And then in verse 6, beginning, but he must ask in faith without any doubting. Now, after verses 6 through 7, after kind of explaining where he goes, we know that the doubting is not simply doubting whether God will give him wisdom. 
It's a more fundamental doubting of whether he wants wisdom, whether he is willing to live by wisdom. He's, he's, he's doubting which way he will choose. Will he build on rock or sand, narrow gate or broad gate, tree planted by streams of water or chaff blowing in the wind, blessing or cursing? And when given the chance, he says, give me that one he longingly looks at the path not chosen and longs for it too. The person is the paradigm of, of immaturity. They choose like a child what, 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 whatever, whatever shiny thing they see next. So James' prognosis is terrifying. This man ought not to expect he will receive anything from the Lord. That's not faith. See, faith hears the cry of wisdom. Faith sees the value of wisdom. Faith wants the wisdom of God. Faith needs the wisdom of God. Faith must have that wisdom lest it die. And faith then goes to God for that wisdom. And when God gives wisdom, then faith lives by that wisdom. Not perfectly, but truly. Faith believes that God is good and sincere, that he will not reproach. Faith believes that the wisdom he offers is essential. As, as, as one commentator writes, faith is a complete commitment to God entrusting obedience. I love that. Faith is complete commitment to God entrusting obedience. Sometimes we just limit faith to say, do you believe Jesus died for you? Faith is complete commitment to God entrusting obedience. That is what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. And that is what it means to believe that he will give you wisdom. See, what God offers, faith takes Faith listens to the encouragement that James gave, and faith reaches out. Faith knows the treasure is there and knows that finding that treasure will be worth it. And so he launches an expedition for treasure. He's calculated the cost of wisdom, and he will die in the process of getting it if he must. That man asks, believing he asks, believing that God is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him in Hebrews eleven six, The very heart of faith, God is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Come and get wisdom in. He says, I'm going for it. I'm going to keep going for it. That's what I'm going to do on Sunday night. That's what I'm going to do on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. I'm going to get wisdom. Oh, and yet, saints, how much comfort is there, even as I describe this in the life of Abraham? On occasion, Abraham, the example of faith, doubted in some really big ways. Abraham, if you didn't know, lied, saying that his wife was his sister. And Abraham did that so that Pharaoh could take his wife, Sarah, as his own, and Abraham could save his skin. Now, God prevented it getting as bad as it could have. But that was not Abraham trusting God. Abraham followed, another time, Sarah's advice, and had a child with Sarah's servant in order to produce an heir that God had promised. Again, not an example of faith. But listen to what Paul says of Abraham. And, and, and if you're saved, and if you're convicted listening to this, this is going to be encouraging to you. Romans 4.20 says, Yet with respect to the promise of God, Abraham did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And that word waver is the same word for doubting. He did not waver. He didn't doubt. Abraham doubted God on occasion, but he didn't waver in, 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 in unbelief. He tried to produce an error a crazy way, but deep down he knew God's promises. He didn't go back to Ur. He didn't stand on the edge of Canaan and saying, should I or shouldn't I? Should I believe this promise from, from God? Or he just, he wasn't stuck there. He wasn't stuck between God's way and his way. Not that he didn't sin and not that he didn't sin in some, in some tremendous ways. But he also passed tremendous tests, even willing to sacrifice his own son that God had promised him. Our faith doesn't have to be perfect to be real faith. Mark 9, 24 says, Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, but believe he came to, to, to Jesus to heal his son. I do believe, help my, 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 my 
un, my unbelief. And that may be you this morning. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. See, if you're praying that, you are all in. Even as you know how weak your faith is. You are like Abraham that left Ur way behind. You are all in. But I don't know that all of you are all in. And I have fears. Do you have that faith or are you double-minded? When wisdom calls, faith sprints in its lane. It doesn't mean it never falls, but it sprints in its lane. But doubt just false starts. When wisdom calls, faith decides where doubt delays. Faith picks and doubt postpones. Faith counts the cost and doubt counts, counts the cost and counts the cost again and counts the cost again, reaches for his wallet and then puts the wallet back in. He's just always stuck there day after day, hour and hour. And I'm afraid that some of you believers, some of you, I don't know if you believers, you're stuck between two ways. See, both faith and doubt see the beauty of wisdom. They want to have the clear conscience of a life pleasing to the Lord. But only the one who has faith goes through the door. The double-minded man is stuck in a revolving door of his affections. He just goes around and around again, distracted by the gospel, which is great, but then distracted hours later by the next shiny thing. One, one wrote, to waver in the presence of God is to hold oneself back from him. What a great quote. To waver in the presence of God is to hold oneself back from him. Don't hold yourself back from God. Double-minded man, woman, you may not even know if you're in God's kingdom or not. Choose wisdom and faith and don't look back. Choose the path of maximum maturity and not of least maturity. Don't just like, like, like be that, that, that one talent servant in Matthew 25 is like, well, I... I don't really know if I trust him or not. So I'm going to bury this talent. I'll give him back to him what he gave me. Don't go big. It doesn't matter if God gave you 1.1 talents or 5 talents or, or 10 talents or 0.5 talents. Go big and, and become as mature as possible. Go for the most growth and don't be satisfied with a little growth. Choose the path of endurance and not that of the sluggard. Not that of the double-minded man who just spins in circles. Burn your boats and blow up the bridges. Shred your passport so that there's no going back. Throw your keys over a waterfall. Delete all your internet bookmarks of things that keep captivating you. Change your passwords. Put a cap on your data plan. Sell your possessions. Get rid of your television. Shut down your Instagram account. Flee what captivates you. I'm not saying any of those things are bad themselves, but what stops you from being wholeheartedly after the beautiful Jesus Christ? Flee what captivates you. Stick your fingers in your ear to block out the sirens, this call that lures you back to the waves of indecision. Don't be comfortable being that rubber duck in that kiddie pool. 1 Kings 18.21, Elijah, he came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. Don't vacillate. But the people didn't answer him a word. And brother, sister, don't be that person who doesn't answer a word. Revelation 3.16 says, So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And that's the double-minded man. Do you want this wisdom? Do you want endurance to have its perfect work so that you become mature and complete, lacking in nothing? Wisdom is there for the asking. James 1.5, I'll read it again. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. This is not about me keeping you away from asking. This is about if you are double-minded to go and ask. And if you're not double-minded, go and ask. God gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. 
Jesus says to all those who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I'll give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. God will give wisdom if you have faith. If you have the commitment to go to God and obey, choose wisdom. That is what faith is. It's not just, a, 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 it's not just the theology, it's theology and practice. So when you say, God, I want to be all in, please beg of you, beg of God. Say, God, help me be all in and help me to pray the same thing in two hours when I turn on the TV or not turn on the TV. Help me to be all in when I get online later or when I shouldn't get online later. Help me to be all in for all day and all week and all month and please carry me safely home to the promised land. On June 6th of this year, just a couple months ago, 89-year-old Forrest Fenn confirmed on his website that the treasure he had hidden 10 years ago had been finally found. And, 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 and he describes it. It was under a canopy of stars in the lush, forested vegetation of the Rocky Mountains. It had not moved from the spot where I hid it more than 10 years ago. I do not know the person who found it. They, 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 they didn't tell their, their name or address, but it had a picture. But the poem in my book led him to the precise spot. I congratulate the thousands of people who participated in the search and hope they will continue to be drawn by the promise of other discoveries. So the search is over. That treasure was truly valuable. Finding it required faith. People died in the search for Fenn's treasure, believing it was worth it. The double-minded man will ultimately die because he never believed that wisdom was quite worth it. Because he never believed long enough to pick up his cross and follow. Don't be that double-minded man. Proverbs 3, verses 13 to 14. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her profit is better than the profit of silver and her gain better than fine gold. Truly worth giving up all and following. Let's pray. Now, Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for how your word is a mirror to our hearts. And Lord, uh, you know, Father, if this has been encouraging to the saints who have been all in and who are lining up to ask for wisdom, you also know how the double-minded are responding. Maybe some of them are saved and some of them aren't and some of them don't know if they are. Some are responding to this message, wanting it more than anything, and yet are going to have some very hard choices to make later. Father, I pray that you give grace to us all, grace to the wise man to keep pursuing wisdom, grace to the double-minded man to truly be all in, to live life your way, to live life with skill, to put theology into practice, to pick up the cross and follow. Help us not to be the impossible man who is looking for a third way, a way that Jesus never describes. In Jesus' name, amen.